If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. You can listen as I read to you from God's Word, and then we will pray and begin to consider this portion of Scripture this morning. Listen as I read 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, and she who had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes in the, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, take some time now to look at this passage of Scripture, it is our desire always, God, that you would take these words that in your own wisdom you caused to be written down so many years ago, that as we hear the words of this prayer of this song, God, that our hearts and our minds would be enlarged with a sense of the greatness of our God, with a sense of your own glory and grandeur, that God, as we, we consider this, we would be able to really grasp the complicated realities that we experience while in this world, but face them with comfort and confidence because you are such a great and glorious God. Lord, we pray that the things that we consider this morning, that you would bring them with real vividness and real clearness to our hearts, that they would impact the very way that we think and engage this world and God, that you would be pleased and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we began actually in 1 Samuel last week and we looked at chapter 1. In chapter 1, we, we saw that unique situation of that historic time where men would at times take to themselves more than one wife. Elkanah, not a common name for us today, had taken to himself two wives. One was Peninnah and one was Hannah. 
these wives had become rival wives as is not surprising that that would take place. And one of them was having lots of children and the other one was barren and unable to have children. As time went by, Elkanah being a Levite and the family being somewhat devout, they would travel annually to a place called Shiloh to worship. Every time they would go to Shiloh to worship, then that the whole family would come together and that rival wife Peninnah would use that time to instigate, irritate, provoke poor Hannah, making her feel worthless and useless because she couldn't have children. And in, the, in that state of regular uh, revisited misery as she was there, she was crying out to God and pleading for him to please give her a son. And if God was to give her a son, that she would give that son to him. He would be separated. He would follow what would be called like the Nazarite vow. He would be dedicated to God from day one. Razor wouldn't touch his head. No strong drink would ever be taken. He would be given to the temple and raised there to be a priest and to live his life in the service of God. She prays this prayer and God in his mercy and in his own kindness answered her prayer and took a woman who was barren, who could not have children and miraculously granted her a child. Now once that child was weaned, about three years oldish, took him back there and is giving her son, whose name is Samuel, to the temple and he's going to stay there with Eli and in that place he's going to be trained up in the service of the temple he's going to work in very simple and practical ways in his youth and he's going to grow up and God is actually going to be using him sort of as the final judge as well as a priest and prophet among the children of Israel now the child has been born, they've come back to Shiloh, they have put the son there with great rejoicing, and here in the beginning of chapter 2, we have Hannah's prayer, or Hannah's song, some call it, because of the poetic meter of it. And there, when I just want us to look today at these things that God does, or reveals to us through Hannah. Because in this passage, in Hannah's prayer, we see praise, we see declarations regarding God's power in his person. And then thirdly, we see prophecy laced in there in, an, in, an, in a very unexpected way. But the first thing I want to draw your attention to is, is go with me, if you would, to verse 1. It says this, uh, the first thought I want to show you is that Hannah is filled with elated exaltation in the Lord. Okay? It, it, it is, it is a, a fullness of joy and a fullness of heart. It says this, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. Now the, the challenge we might face from time to time is the word exult. The very next verse says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. And So there's these two words, exult and exalt. And I dare say if we gave an exam, we might not know exactly what is going on there. And it's because, when's the last time you used the word exult in a conversation or read it in the newspaper? It's just not 
part of our modern language, as sometimes poetic language isn't. But the idea of exulting is that idea of glorying in, boasting in, rejoicing in. It is an overflow of a heart that is touched with gladness. That's a, this is wonderful, and, and in a sense, I think we can enter in and, and join that joy of Hannah because every year that they've journeyed to Shiloh, it has not been joy and gladness that she's been experiencing. Every year, it's getting there and, and facing this resentment, this attack, this bitterness, and just being filled with grief and hardness of heart and heaviness of spirit. But this time she comes for the first time after many years, really probably for the first time since the early part of her marriage. We don't know how long it was, but when chapter 1 tells us about that antagonism, we get a sense that it was somewhat extended so that it intensified. Here she comes now. And she comes with a heart full of gladness and a heart full of worship because God has answered her prayers. God has provided for her a son. That son that she had so pleaded for, so longed for, so desired. God had granted that request miraculously and she is filled with gladness and hope and encouragement and she comes and begins to pour her heart out in that and I can't help at the beginning of that but think as you and I both should you know beyond the practical physical offspring God has given us a son his only son and what his son means and what his son represents and what his son accomplishes in terms of the perfect righteousness of his life, the wonderful compassion and clarity of his teaching, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection for our justification, all that hope. I think if Hannah would be filled with gladness because she had a little boy of her own who brought not re eternal redemption did not bring forgiveness of sin it just brought her some sense of uh, out of the the being shameful and being despised in this present world being looked down on in this present world and, and just brought her up a little notch what we have in Christ is far more than that we who are by nature at enmity with God. We who are sinners, unworthy to even come to Him, by Him giving His Son, we now have access, boldness, forgiveness, hope. I'm just encouraging you this thought, brothers and sisters, even in the very beginning. If Hannah had reason for gladness, It's only fractional compared to the reasons we have for gladness in the son that God has provided for us. Now this, of course, is also one of those uh, unique sermons where the person who is praying this prayer, there's someone sitting here who has that same name. So when I say that name over and over again, it's going to draw the attention of that dear girl. So I'm sure Hannah will listen closely. But my heart exalts and I want to focus on this because God is doing something here. My heart exalts in the Lord. 
That's what it says there. Because God has done something in revealing himself to her, in answering her prayer, so that her gladness is not rooted in Samuel. My heart exalts in who? In the Lord. That's the source of her joy. She now has an overwhelming confidence, not just a theoretical knowledge, not just talk about, not just raised in a religious uh, environment that esteems God. God has mercifully shown himself mighty to her. And she knows God is more glorious. I think back to the the first chapter and, and her husband said, you know, am I not more to you than seven sons? Am I not more to you than many sons? And the answer for poor Elkanah is no. You're not solving my problem. I need a son. But she's come really full circle after having a son and the son actually is being given to the temple. It's not going to be raised by her. Not going to be living with her. And though Elkanah was no substitute for a son, the Lord is more than sufficient joy and satisfaction than a son. While she was looking to other things to bring gladness and hope, didn't happen. God granted the son, and now the son is going to be apart from her, but her exulting, her joy rejoicing and boasting is in the Lord. Even next, not only does her heart exult in the Lord, it says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Okay, so exalt, glad, rejoice, boasting. Exalt, lift up, which can also speak of praise. Now listen, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I mean, that's not a phrase most of us would probably come up with. We probably rarely have conversations with others about our horns. Because we just live in a very different age, a very different culture, a very different environment than they did. Back in those days, when someone would speak of a horn, it would have two primary senses symbolically. I mean, it would have one sense literally. What's the literal, literal sense? It's the horn. But we don't have those horns. Sadly, uh, somebody confused Michelangelo and he actually made a painting of Moses with little horns. Misunderstood the idea of this concept. The idea of horns conveyed two primary ideas. The first and most common was the idea of strength. Okay? And together with the idea of strength and might would come the idea of honor. Okay. These two ideas, again, you might think among it if you were to see a, a group of beasts out there having their horns, the one whose horns are the most prominent, the most distinct, the most well-grown. You'd think, he's the big boy. He's the boss. He's the one. It, 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 he just stands out as the one having strength, as the one having honor, as the one hold, holding preeminence. My, now, it's not that she has suddenly become queen of the world. But it's also talking about when you take it away, her horn is now exalted, means before, where did she find her strength? Where did she find her sense of honor? It was brought low. She felt weak. She felt hopeless. She was shamed and dishonored. 
And who took her from that position of shame and dishonor and brought her up from there? My horn is exalted in the Lord. Again, she doesn't see her shame as removed by Samuel or practical circumstances. But God has given me a sense that I'm not worthless, I'm not useless. Uh, I, I who, who would rightly be considered a, a worthless and dishonorable, he has somehow made me a treasured possession. He is my glory and the lifter of my head. The psalmist says it like that. And so the, these ideas, he be, she begins with these elated exultations in the Lord. Then she says, my mouth derides my enemies. Now that, that, that's a paraphrase slightly because really literally what it says there is my mouth opens wide over my adversaries. Okay, And so that is a figure of speech. I'm not going to demonstrate that for you. You can visualize it in your own mind. But there is the speaking. You thought you could destroy me. You thought you could bring me down. You thought you could bring it to ruin. But you are not the power that prevails. God is. You think that you could destroy me? You cannot. God is more powerful. Because her bo the boasting isn't simply, and this is what's important about opening the mouth large, it's not just to deride the enemies as the ESV seems to say. It says, my mouth is open large over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The reason why I can talk to my enemies with a boldness, that's the idea of open mouth, more than deriding, with a boldness is you could not get it done because God had delivered me. You stood against me, but God stood for me. You tried to crush me, but God took me from being crushed and lifted me out of that. And so it, it, the wonderful thing that I'm seeing in all of this, and then it says, rejoice and be glad. The gladness, because I rejoice in your salvation. Again, what I want you to notice is this, all this gladness and all this praise, she forgot to mention Samuel. She forgot to mention a son. Well, the son was given to her in answer to her prayer, but the son served not as then the center of her being, but simply a source through which God revealed himself to her to be mighty, to be powerful to be the deliverer, to be the helper, to be the strength. And so that once she's understood these things about God, everything has changed. So that the, her life is now not centered on the son that God gave, but centered on the God who gives. We've got to remember that in the context of even the, the, the age and the church and the world in which we live, so many times we can get captivated and caught up on the things that God gives us. And he is abundantly gracious and we probably all have many, many things that we could rejoice in and be thankful for. But what I'm encouraging us to do is learn by Hannah to go a step further and not only be thankful for the gifts he gives, but look beyond that to the praise of the giver of all good things, to the praise of the one who alone has the power. And you know what, with regard to all these other things, they could be taken away. 
In Hebrews 10, we hear about those people who, who their possessions were being plundered in those early days. It came known that they were Christians. Their house were being, houses were being ransacked. Their position, possessions were being taken away. And, and in that loss, it said they joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions, knowing they had a better and more lasting possession or kingdom. Wow. That, because why? When they had them, they thanked God for them. When they were gone, you know what? You can separate me from my house. You can separate me from my family. You can separate me from my television. You can separate me from my health. But Romans remind us of this. You cannot separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. It cannot be done and once we grasp that and Hannah seems to have come to grasp that sense of God's salvation and grace everything is remarkably changed as she begins to praise and thank God the second thing I want to draw your attention to is in verse 2 verse 1 we saw the elated exaltation of the Lord and in verse 2 we see an expressed estimation of the Lord her understanding of who he is and, and, and what he's all about. You know, the, too often, we diminish God in our understandings. Maybe we set him just a little bit above powerful men or a little bit above the power of the enemy. We're missing it. There's no little bit. God himself is so extraordinarily highly exalted, majestic, powerful, mighty, that everything else is so small and so distant by comparison. And she begins to has begun by grace to recognize this, and we see this expressed estimation of the Lord. Uh, first of all, we see she expresses that, the, that God is supremely distinct. Verse 2 says it like this, There is none holy like the Lord. Now the word holy, at times we limit it to his moral perfections. He's perfect. He does no wrong. And that is true. His holiness absolutely includes and incorporates his moral perfection, but his holiness covers everything. God is not a man. He is not a created being. He is so distinct, so separate, so other that we don't even have worthy or valuable comparisons. And that's what's challenging to us at times. We can't make those comparisons. But we've got to understand that. Don't limit it. When you hear that God is holy, it means that He is supremely distinct in every category in every way not just his moral perfections just in in his judgments in his wisdom in his love everything every characteristic of God that we would speak of every attribute of God really is pervaded by his holiness which makes him so distinct from others look I want us to see this um, in Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, it's stated this way. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, 
awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. What I'm saying is this. In all different kinds of religions, they make different kinds of gods. None of them match the power, person, and majesty of the God of the Scriptures. None of the imaginations of men about potentially powerful beings come even close to the truth of how great and glorious God actually is. It can't be compared to anything. And the challenge is, the moment we say He can't be compared to anything, we start making comparisons. Well, what about the power of an elephant compared to the power of a dust mite? You know, which one could hurt me more if he stepped on me? You know? And we begin to try to make these comparisons. Well, that's a, that's a pretty big divide, isn't it, between those two? Where it, it, almost not worthy of comparing it. If a dust mite steps on you, do you feel it? If an elephant stepped on you, would you feel it? Yeah, but uh, e even as much as, however big we could make that divide, you know, if we start comparing the, you know, the size of a grain of sand to the size of the largest planet or star that we're aware of, whatever big comparisons we get, we still can't get there. Because to what will you compare him? And the, of course, the, it's a rhetorical question that means you're supposed to say, we can't truly compare him to anything. The only reason we know him is because he's revealed himself. Otherwise, if he hadn't told us who he is and what he's doing, we would never have known. But even though it says, to what you will compare me, the answer is supposed to be nothing. But we've filled in the blanks. Mankind has filled in those blanks for centuries and will not stop doing so. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Wait, never makes mistakes? Never. Never lacks power? Never. Never lacks certainty and surety and wisdom? No. Wow. What's he like? He's only like himself. Well, then how will we know what he's like? Only way is to listen to him because only he can tell us. Not only is he supremely, incomparably distinct, he's also singularly distinct because after it says there is none holy like the Lord it then adds these words for there is none besides you okay you can't you, not only can you not compare him with any other gods please be aware of this there are no other gods there's nothing besides him there is no other there is only one God and of course that one God comes to us mysteriously as the scripture tells us in father Son and Holy Spirit, the triune God in that mystery that itself we can't comprehend. When men have tried to recreate that idea, they end up developing three gods. A creator God, a sustainer God, a destroyer God. 
And they have these different gods that accomplish different things. They got gods of hills and valleys and gods of, uh, of water and earth and fire and whatever it may be. They develop all of these things. But the fact is this, there's no God beside him. Anywhere and everywhere, over everything that exists, singularly distinct. Deuteronomy 4.35 says this to Israel, To you it was shown that you may know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside Him. So if somebody were to ask you, are there many gods? What's the answer? No, there's not. There's only one God and there's none beside Him. And we could go further into the New Testament. Are there many ways to salvation? Are there many ways for forgiveness? And the answer is no. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, but by me. That's it. Well, isn't that narrow? Well, narrow is the way, and few are those who will find it. But um, is two plus two equals four narrow? That's pretty narrow. Could it not sometimes be four and a half? No, it can't sometimes be four and a half. Well, that's pretty narrow to answer that math problem the same every time. Well, it's not narrow. It's right. It's accurate. It's true. Now, I'll tell you, well, that's math. That's not God. The only reason math works is because we have a God of order. Everything that exists, every form of wisdom, every form of order, every seeming natural law, where do they all come to us from? The divine wisdom who has bestowed those things upon us and revealed those things to us and ordered all the things, the nature, the seasons, the changes. By grace, we begin to understand that Remarkable surety. In, uh, not only is he supremely distinct and singularly distinct, he is savingly distinct. It says that at the end of, uh, there, it says, there is no rock like our God. Now, some of you will see that and say, I thought we weren't supposed to make comparisons. And then you just compared him to a rock. Mm, not comparing him to a rock. A rock held certain significance in that age and in that era, probably a little bit different than it does. For some people, when they hear the phrase, the rock, they think of a prominent celebrity right now. For others, when they hear the idea of a rock, they're thinking of a small stone that they're going to pick up and throw at somebody. That's not the sense of this word. The sense of this word, idea of a rock, is a place of fortress, safety. You, you get in the rock, you're safe from your enemy. You're delivered. The danger is done. That's the idea that's being spoken of here. He is ultimately our salvation. Indeed, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 32, it will say this, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Deuteronomy 32, 31 says this, For their rock, the, what the other nations are hoping in for their protection and their deliverance, their rock 
is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Because their rock, their hope of deliverance is what? Nothing. It's empty. And that's why we declare the only rock that saves. Be to me, the psalmist says in Psalm 71, a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me. For you are my rock and my refuge. That's the idea of a rock and refuge. You have given the command to save me. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I can't save myself. I can't deliver myself. I need the rock. I need to flee to the rock. I need to be in the rock. God had given the command to save them. 1 Corinthians tells us an interesting thing as we move to the, to the New Testament. It speaks of how God was providing for them water out of the rock and it gives us that unique continuation. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, they all drank from the same spiritual rock. For they all, or they all drank from the same spiritual rock. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. What? Yes, and he who was... the. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 7-ish. The stone that was rejected became what? The chief cornerstone upon which we are being built as living stones. And so ultimately, when we think of a rock, deliverance, salvation, and protection, where does it really go to? Well, it goes beyond those historic ways where from enemies attacking, but it, it goes well beyond that. We who were enemies, God saved us from our sin that set us at enmity with God, and He protects us from the evil one who would seek to attack and mislead us so that we are secure by His grace in Christ Jesus, His Son. Okay, let's see a few more ideas. Go with me if you would, and we'll see the... the the third point, which covers verses 3 to 10. So we cover a larger section here. This is the exalting explications of the Lord. Exalting explications. He's going to speak about a few different things, explaining them, opening them up, making them clear in ways that show us how unclear the world is to us. But remind us that nothing is accidental. Nothing is overlooked. It says this, beginning in verse 3, it says, First of all, talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. When you consider who God is, the first effect that it has is it is pride silencing. It shuts it up. Remember, in James it was said, we're going to go and we're going to transact business next year, we're going to come back. And it said, all such boasting is evil and arrogant. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And we will go. And if the Lord wills, we will turn a profit. The thought that somehow things just happen, that's not the way it works. All things that happen happen under the purposes and constrained and guided by the power of He who works all things after the counsel of His will. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It's pride silencing. So the person who was successful in the battle, I did it. Can he really boast in that? Or does he recognize, well, the battle belongs to the Lord? You know, is it his skill or is it his might? Who, uh, it, so often it's interesting when we get to read those Old Testament battles and it said, and the Lord gave them into the hand of their enemy. And the Lord gave them into their hand. And, the, and constantly telling us the outcome of the battle didn't come with the strongest soldiers, the best war plans, the best weapons. It was all God at work. And so it, it's pride silencing. It also reminds us that God perfectly sees all things. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Whereas we're not. We think we know all the answers. We know why this happened and why that happened. And, uh, but God is an absolute God of knowledge. And this is so comforting to her. When I was in misery, when I was in discouragement, was I, when I was in shame, God knew that. The circumstances that are now unfolding, God knows that. Um, one of the passages that elucidates this so clearly is Psalm 139 says this in Psalm 139, verse 1 and following, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Just to give a particular as God being the Lord of knowledge, that this knowledge isn't just general, that we could give him a general knowledge exam, that we could give him extensive knowledge exam of fields of study in the world. But rather, it, it, it certainly includes all of that but it's also much more detailed and much more personal. It says, you have searched me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you discern my thoughts from afar. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look around to all of you and I can't say for sure exactly what time you got up this morning. And usually even you, uh, your friends or roommates or spouse won't necessarily know exactly when you did or, or, or woke up or didn't wake up. It may be that if you did not immediately look at a clock, you could not even say what time you got up. Our knowledge is just so limited by observation and investigation. God's knowledge is so thorough and complete. He knows us better than we know ourselves. It, you discern our thoughts from afar. Uh, I could hazard a guess what you're thinking right now. You're asking me not to? I'm not going to go around the room and do that, but, uh, and sometimes based on facial experience and visual cues, it can get pretty close maybe, but it's just a guess. I don't know for sure. You know, and if you're like me and somebody says, let me guess what you're thinking, immediately I think of something really bizarre, you know, uh, so, so that they'll, uh, a, a rainbow-colored elephant, so that they'll never, never be able to guess what I'm thinking of. Uh, but that, even though I think I've got you, you're never going to think what I'm thinking. Can't do that to God. Because <laughs> actually, even before I've changed my thought to the bizarre, he already knew exactly when I was going to change it and what I was going to change it to. I can't catch him off guard. I can't surprise him. I can't... Wow! I can't hide anything from him. I can hide things from most everybody. 
You know, we can have a, a, a world of secret thoughts that nobody outside knows about. But that doesn't work with God. Further, if you look in, it's still in Psalm 139, it says, uh, verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. Right? So here you are, maybe, ready to make your excuse to God as to why you did that. Explain yourself to that. Do you need to explain it to him? Even before you make your excuse, even before you say it, he already knows what you're going to say. What if I do something secret in the distance or in the dark? Well, down in verse 11, it says, If you say, Surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be like night. Verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. So no matter where I go, no matter what I do, he knows it all. He knows it not only after I do it, but before I do it. He knows it not only after I say it, but before I say it. He knows it not only after I think it. I mean, who, who is like this God? And then further back over in 1 Samuel 2, it says, uh, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Oh, it's pride silencing. He perfectly sees and he punishes sin. Oh, no. If the one who perfectly sees and perfectly perceives all things is the one who punishes sin, uh-oh. Is there any escape? Is there any hiding it? No, there is no escaped excuse to be found. The only hope to be found is in grace in the forgiveness and cleansing that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, uh, what, a, what an astounding notion that he brings and even punishes the one who sees all and knows all is the one that everyone must answer to. Boy, that just leaves us, whew, where, where ultimately we would have to say, God help me. And he sent a greater son than Samuel. But further, within this, we all, within this exalting explications of the Lord, we also see his power shown. And that his power is shown in, in, in unique ways, at times in what I would call perplexing providence, which means I don't get it. Why did it happen like that? Why did you wait so long to give her a son and then give it to her now? Why were you giving so many children to the wicked woman? I, I, we don't understand why you're doing that. Here we love you and we're trying to serve you and yet we're having all these problems and we're having all these struggles. Those people, they don't love you at all and they seem to be healthy and prosperous and full of practical earthly joys. I don't get it. And she begins in verse 4 to speak like this. The bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. So, so the first thought is this. Even those things that seem contrary, that seem impossible, that seem irreversible, in her experience, God reversed the seeming irreversible. God changes those things. You know, first of all, it, it, it indicates um, by in, God changing them, and then it further goes on to say, well, 
It's because each one of them, God established them. Uh, okay, so it begins there in verse four by saying, what? The bows of the mighty are broken. So here we are, the great fighters and the great uh, warriors, and now all of a sudden our weapons are gone. And the weak one, but the feeble, the one who couldn't do anything, bind on strength. So the strong one became weak and the weak one became strong. And then verse uh, five, those who were full, well-satisfied, well-fed, are now what? Have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He can totally change to opposite extremes any one circumstance at any time. He's the one who kills. He's the one who brings life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. He makes poor. He makes rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. Basically, what is it beginning laying out for us? He's God. At all times, in all places, with all knowledge and all power. That's a great God. And so whatever my circumstances are, I know that if he wills, he can change it. And if he keeps me here, he can preserve me here. Further, even going down, if you would, look, at, look with me at verse 8. It, go, it ends with the, these, these ideas. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap and makes them to sit with princes. And oftentimes these things end up having salvific illusions. We who are all by nature poor and needy, do we deserve to be those who inherit the earth? Do we deserve to be those who will reign with him? Does that even make sense? Well, he raises us to do that. All the means that will make us fit and worthy for that, he is going to provide in the person of his son. He, it, what's beautiful about it is that, that we would sit with princes, that we will have a place with him, that we will roll with him. It's because what? He puts us there. What a powerful act of his grace. And then further, you also see this, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. At the end of verse 8. And on those, them he has secured the world. Now, scientifically, they're still struggling to find the pillars of the earth because it's not a scientific statement, is it? It's a poetic statement. And what does it mean? God is the one who made it and established it all. God made it. God established it. God controls it. God administrates it, God orders it, God organizes it. History is not independent of him, but it is him unfolding in his will in the process of our time. And so then we see not only those beautiful elements of how it's peculiar and pervading, but listen, we see that it's present and personal. Look at verse 9. He will... Guard the feet 
of his faithful ones. What a wonderful statement. We've gone from just the general statements about all these different things he does to now here we have a peculiar promise. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The enemy will try to attack. Temptation will try to come in. But we have a sure and steadfast refuge in the rock. See, this, the strength to overcome is not me. It's he who is in me. Because what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. By faith and our union with Christ, we overcome all that would come. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Not by might does a man prevail. It's not going to be by our strength. It's not going to be by our intentions. It's not going to be by our efforts. The only way that you or I are possibly going to be faithful is by God's gracious preserving of us. And so where do we flee? Where do we run? Where do we look? Where do we cry? Save me. Keep me. Lead me, guide me, teach me, help me. Be my support, be my strength, be my all. Even verse 10 really ends with what is a prophetic and perfected. Not only do we see, um, now, do, does every poor person get lifted up and every rich person get brought low? No, it's simply saying when that happens, it's God who does it. When everything happens, it's God who's in control of those things. But then it moves forward. He will guard the feet. And this is what he's presently doing even now in this age. He's guarding the feet of those who he's brought to Christ. And by that union with the faithful one and the outflow of the faith that he has imparted to us, we are imperfectly the faithful. And then it says this in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken off. Against them he will thunder. There is, even as it began with an idea of judgment, there is coming a time of judgment. The day of reckoning will come. I mean, this is one of those things that the world likes to make fun of Christians about, don't we? Repent, for the end is near. Oh, that crazy man standing on the street corner wearing that sign, saying those things. Now, I don't know that fellow, and he might be crazy, but that does not mean that everything that he says is wrong. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. And there is only one hope in the day of judgment. What is that? Christ Jesus our Lord. And here, here it is. Um, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But even prophetically in this, uh, he will judge the ends of the earth. It prophetically prepares us for a, for a hope and a deliverance even within the midst of that judgment. And he will give strength to the king. What is Hannah talking about? At this point, how many kings have there been in Israel? None. There have been no kings. They were slaves. They were brought out by Moses who was a prophet. They were brought into this land. There's been various judges. They have not had a king. They will, in the following chapters, demand a king. And God will give them Saul. And then God will move Saul aside. And he will give them David. But ultimately, there is going to be a greater king that comes from the line of David. 
a king who will have all strength. Indeed, I might say all authority will be given to him by the Father. Do you know who that king is? Indeed, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what does it say? And he, this is the Lord, will exalt the horn, exalt the majesty, the honor, the might, the strength, the dignity, the person and power of his anointed, of his Messiah, of his Messiah, of his Christ. You, and so what's remarkable in all this, and then it, it ends there in verse 11 by saying, and Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So what's, what's astounding in all of this, Hannah was given this uh, gift of a son, but far more than this gift of a son, she was given a gift of a glimpse of the glory of God and his grace in the coming king. What a wonderful blessing. The full import of that, who knows to what degree she could have comprehended all of those things. And apart from what, what God, the secret that was kept hidden for ages, has now been made known to the saints. So we now see those things and we know those things and we glory in those things. So wherever we are, we can say, I am where I am. Things are what they are because of him. And all that I've done is known to him. And he will come again. He is surely coming again. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there is only one strength. There is only one hope. There is only one rock. There is only one salvation. And that's in the king. That's in the anointed. That's in a son greater than Samuel. That's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just are amazed at how you were preparing your message of your, your global sovereignty and your sovereign grace and declaring that thousands of years before you sent your son. Lord, we thank you for those promises. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for that surety. Lord, I pray for everyone here. If there would be any here who do not have that hope, that do not know you as their Savior, oh God, that you would reveal yourself to them as they hear the glorious declarations of Hannah. They would in their hearts be stirred to pursue, to long after, to indeed follow that God and his salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.